You are listening to Ouija Broads. This is Devin. This is Liz. And today, Liz, I'm going to tell you about the second lives of a couple Seattle mortuaries. Gee. Yeah. Uh, Seattle has at least two supposedly haunted food and drink establishments that both have a funerary past. One is Kell's Irish Pub, which is downtown near the market. Uh-huh. And the second is the Pine Box, which is a bar that was formerly Chapel Bar in Capitol Hill. Oh, Pine Box. Okay. Pine Box. It's a good one. For their third anniversary, they did a uh, an event and worked with a brewery to make a special beer called the Third Nail, because it was their third nail in the coffin. Oh, How cute that's is that? Awesome. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty sweet. I mean, it's death and it's puns. I don't I don't get happier. <laughs> Can you remind me or tell me what what a mortuary does specifically? Yeah. Is it like an undertaker? It's so a mortuary. This is a really great question because the the dude that owned the mortuaries that became these two establishments, it was the same man and he's actually an American funeral director who's believed to have coined the term mortuary and mortician. Um, oh. A mortuary is it's a, it's a funeral home, but it's like an all all inclusive, all services funeral home. What set him apart? Sorry, I'll tell you. His name was Edgar Ray Butterworth. So E R is what he went by. Uh, e R Butterworth and Sons was a series of mortuaries that were different from other funerary establishments in the U.S. because they were they provided all the death services you could think of. They would go collect the body from the hospital or the home or wherever it died. Uh, they had a huge selection of coffins and of funerary garments. They had a chapel. They had a place where you could have your funeral and do the services. They would rent you a hearse. So they could take your uh, deceased person from their establishment to the graveyard. They had an organist even on site who would play for your funeral. So he really revolutionized, uh, E.R. Butterworth revolutionized the funeral services industry by making it kind of a one-stop shop for funerals. Yeah, He also was notable because he really pioneered the traditional embalming techniques that Americans knew from the early 1900s onward. In Europe, they were still doing pretty natural deaths still. So you died, people maybe had a wake, they had a a body viewing for 24 hours, and then they put you in the ground. But with World War I, and World War II and so many Americans dying overseas and their families not being able to recover their bodies for weeks. He was one of the pioneers of embalming techniques that hadn't really been used since uh, the Egyptians did, honestly. Whoa. Yeah. So he was the first dude that was taking bodies, embalming them, preserving them for weeks at a time, and then presenting them at a open casket funeral Weeks after they died, but still in a state that they could be viewed by loved ones. That is advanced. It was really advanced. It was really advanced. Edgar Ray Butterworth was born in 1847 in Massachusetts. And from the age of 16 onward, he had to be his family's primary breadwinner. He was really self-educated. He worked first as a hatter. And then he was admitted to the bar at the age of 21 
Uh, Yeah, he was doing all kinds of odd jobs to make ends meet for his family. But when he uh, married his first wife in 1869, she died two years later after he had a son with her, Gilbert. So he moved to St. Louis, Missouri for a fresh start and married his second wife, Maria. They worked in Missouri for a little bit, relocated to Kansas where he became a cattleman. And it was in Kansas where he got his first start as a mortician or as a funerary worker. Um, He was hauling bison bones 125 miles for $10 to a rail yard. And it was on one of these journeys where he was picking up the dead bison that he came across a settler who had one of those little dugout houses and his wife and his child had just died. And he Mm. was mourning them in front of his home. And there was no lumber around, you know, they're in the middle of the Kansas plains. So ER took apart his wagon box, the part where he'd sit on to drive his cattle. And he mm-hmm. made this wife and baby a pine box coffin so that the oh. settler could bury them, which was very sweet. Why was he taking bison bones from one place to another place? <laughs> what are What are they for? It made money. There were a lot of dead bison and getting them to the rail yard made money. I don't know who was paying him to do this. I should have researched that part more, but I didn't care because I was so excited to research the part where he came to Seattle and had these mortuaries. That part is good. I was just like, wait a minute. So is because having lived in the South now in the South, you can pay people to put pine straw on your lawn. And in the Northwest, we pay people to take pine straw away from your lawn when your pine trees crap it all over so i guess i was just trying to get my head around what was the idea that he was removing bison bones and that was the worthy thing or people on the other end were going hooray here he comes with the bison bones like we wanted for question mark which do you think is a better story and i'll say that one is true because i honestly (laughs) don't know let's leave it as a choose your own adventure for the reader and listener can we, can we go back to pine straw? I have never heard pine needles called pine straw. Yeah, that's what they call it down south. And when pine our straw. crappy, crappy landlords, the head, there was a septic tank in the place where we first lived when we okay. were newlyweds. Uh, we had, we were on well water, a septic tank, and our driveway was not paved. Uh, this was that's the boonies. in Chapel Hill. Yeah, so that's I don't really. We have a knack for this. It's going to work out great when we buy a house, too. <laughs> the number of houses I've lived in in my life when I was inside city limits, but directions still included turn off the paved road. <laughs> I just have a real skill for this. So when so, you buy a house, I want you to make sure that it has, you know, water hookup. I don't want you doing your laundry with a ringer <laughs> and a washboard out back. Yep. Yeah, being on the well was exciting, too, because the pipes were pretty old. And at one point, we pulled up on the unpaved driveway, and we saw that this little natural spring was burbling up from the gravel. And we're like, on the one hand, were we settlers, this would be great. On the other hand, we're going to have some weak-ass showers if we don't call somebody (laughs) about this. Yeah, but we had their front lawn. They had, like, removed a giant tree and just left the lawn this big churned red mud mess. And we said, please do something about that before we move in. And they said, oh, definitely. And we moved in and waited a while and nothing happened. And we said, please do something. So they came and just dumped a bunch of pine needles on it and left. (laughs) 
I was like, that was a step in the wrong direction. Oh, it's great. It's great. That's what you do if you want to keep your roses up here from freezing over the winter. Yeah. So they were just planning ahead for the beautiful rose garden they were going to plant you. Yeah, I'm like, at least with the gross churned up mud, nothing could live on it. This is like, hi, would you like every snake <laughs> and creature to come live oh, in your front yard? I forgot about that. Do you remember when I came and visited you and there was we were walking over some... I don't know. We were by the side of the freeway, but you could see down into a path and there was a big ass snake down there. Um, (laughs) I'm never going to move to the south. I don't need it. I actually don't specifically remember that, but there are seven poisonous varieties of snakes that live in North Carolina. So I believe you. (sighs) Well, maybe I maybe it was a story you were telling me about you and Matt seeing a big snake. And in my fear addled mind, I projected one. But I remember. Oh it yeah, we we it. were walking around. We were walking around behind the house one time on a bike path and saw a big old copperhead. Fuck that. Yeah. Fuck that. No, thank you. Seven poisonous snakes in one state. Yeah, seven types of which well, we yeah. would go to the zoo and you would see them lying on top of each other for heat, and I would want to just get in there with a stick and be like, "Stop it! <laughs> Don't make a eighth type." <laughs> it's like a rat king. Only made out of snakes. Yeah, I'm having none of this. (laughs) I mean, the the first sign should have been when my daughter declared that she had a favorite snake at age all of two. Ew. What is wrong with that child? I love her. And now I'm afraid of her. (laughs) She loves snakes and bugs. I mean, I like snakes and bugs too, but not the ones that are going to kill me. Well, her favorite snake was a king snake. So those eat rats and so forth. Yeah. They're a good kind of snake. They're a good kind of snake. How did she know that that was her favorite? Because they were at the Museum of Life and Science. Gotcha. And those, you know, she's always been kind of a parcel tongue. Oh, yeah. Whenever she comes around, snakes always perk up and come over to yeah. the glass and look yeah. at her. And she used to say, they're talking to me. They're saying, hi, Lydia. They know my name. Frick. Frick, <laughs> your spooky ass child. Uh, this yeah. is the child that also is convinced that my real name is not Devin and that I will one day reveal it to her. And Yeah, she's on to you. I'm afraid to tell her what my real name is because then that gives her power over me. She'll cast a spell on you with her snake familiars. Anyway, mortuaries. <laughs> anyway, mortuaries. Um, the Butterworth family. I can get back to them, but I'm trying to figure out where I left off. I think we started talking uh, about buffalo. Yeah, bison bones. He makes it to Washington. They arrived in Washington 1881. They settle in Chehalis. Uh, He wanted to raise stock. So we're back on the buffalo thing. He wanted to raise beef, but he realized that there was no big beef industry in eastern Washington uh, at the time. And that western Washington was not cattle country. He's right. So instead, he built the first steam-powered flour mill west of the Cascades. That was his plan B. Uh, They moved then to Centralia, so he set up a small furniture business. He was a member of the first city council of Centralia. He was the city's mayor. He did two terms in the state legislature. ER was doing all of this political stuff, but then an episode of Black Diphtheria hits the area, and he's asked by the city to stop making furniture and start making coffins to support the huge amount of dead bodies they now have. That is a bummer. It is a huge bummer. 
he started by having a line of ready-made coffins manufactured in Olympia. But then he's like, no, man, this business is rocking. I can make a lot of money, I think. So it's 1892, and I'm going to move to Seattle, and I'm going to go into the undertaking business in earnest. So he moves to Seattle. He purchases controlling interest in Cross and Company Undertakers that was located in a Masonic temple. And he goes into business as Butterworth and Sons Mortuaries. E.R. Butterworth and Sons had a couple different locations before they had a purpose-built facility created specifically for their mortuary and funerary business. It was in October of 1903 that they had the Butterworth block built on 1921 First Avenue in downtown Seattle. It's still a historic Hmm. site. I've driven past it. I don't think it looks like much now, but I'm sure it was very grand at the time. It's got this beautiful stone arch. It's got several levels that are made out of brick. Uh, It's an, an imposing building. At the time, it was this really cool thing because, like I said, it was the first mortuary. It was this first all-inclusive funeral place, um, and it was the city's first purpose-built mortuary building. Up until that time, they'd been using other buildings like the Masonic Temple, had that mortuary in the basement. You, of course, had coroners having offices at hospitals. But this was built specifically for all things funeral. This building was really interesting. I thought I really liked researching Butterworth Mm -hmm. Block because I've never been in a funeral home. And I certainly wasn't in a Victorian era funeral home. And I liked reading about how they set up the different levels and the different areas in this huge, you know, funeral empire that they had. The upper floor of the Butterworth building had flats for the employees and it was accessed by a separate entrance so you could live and work in the Butterworth building. He rented out some of his carriages as ambulances as well when they were needed. And then, you know, you get charged for it. So are you posting on our Facebook page while we're recording? (laughs) No, (laughs) don't look. Why are you on Facebook while we're recording, woman? Am I not interested? I get notifications on my phone. It was lighting up my phone. (laughs) No. Don't look at your phone. Pay attention to me. I'm going to tell you about the business because the next room... Oh, God damn it, Liz. (laughs) You caught me. Yeah, I was posting. You stepped away. You stepped away. That was great. Yeah, as soon as I said it, I'm like, well, I just busted myself. Yeah, you did. Yeah, that was a yourself. rare self bust. Rare my ass. <laughs> no, you do pretty good about covering your tracks. Yeah. Okay. There was a room or something. Yeah, there was a room. The um, the floor below where the employees could live was the showroom for coffins, and they had a separate showroom specifically for children's coffins, um, mm. as well as a room for women's burial garments and a consultation room slash reception area. Uh, Of the 35 caskets on display in August of 1904, the caskets cost anywhere between $25 and $200. Oh. That was not the most expensive casket they had, though. They had a special 
the best showroom, a grand showroom on the main floor, and the caskets down there were as expensive as nine hundred dollars. Damn, that's a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. You're just gonna put it in the ground. You're just gonna put it in the ground, is right. Well, and the garments were between four dollars and one hundred twenty-five dollars. I don't spend $125 on something I'm going to wear more than once. Yeah, right. That you wear now while you're alive and you want people to be like, check her out. What? Yeah. Okay. I wanted to talk to you about that when I read that as well. Because back then, didn't people wear a lot of clothes that weren't really off the rack? They were tailored, right? So. Yeah. I I think, anyway. So if you are having all these tailor-made dresses, presumably you have a nice Sunday best dress and what, you're not going to take it to the fucking Goodwill, or I guess your, you know, your descendants aren't going to take it to the Goodwill because nobody else is going to fit your bizarre tailored measurements. Why don't they just bury you in your nice, your nicest clothes? Why do you have to go buy a special gown or smock or whatever it is? I think this was the same period where they convinced people that to get married, you shouldn't just wear the best outfit you already had. You should go out and buy a special one. So maybe this was a similar project. Hey, dude, we got to middleman it if we want to make money. We got to apparently convince people they need diamonds and special gowns and a $900 box that goes in the ground. And then, of course, on the main level that faced... First Avenue, that's where they had the offices, they had a morgue and an embalming room, they had a special storage room for their utensils, Um, they also had a funeral chapel that could seat up to 150 people with 50 more in the balcony. So you really could go in, get everything you needed for a funeral, have the service there, Butterworth and Sons would take your deceased loved one to the grave site, and he called it a day. It was definitely one-stop shopping, which was really, really innovative for the time. They do that in more places now, right? But not everywhere. Not everywhere, but definitely in more places. He was one of the first that said, we can make this all-inclusive. Huh. Uh, I guess he buried so many people and was so well-known that it was said that it would take him and his son... Uh, his oldest son, Gilbert, from his first marriage, it could take them up to three hours to walk three blocks in downtown Seattle because they were oh, stopped wow. by so many people who wanted to shake their hands and say hello. Huh. I'm glad that didn't turn into kind of a taboo, untouchable thing for them. It wasn't a taboo, untouchable thing for them, but they had their own scandals that made society look sideways at them it wasn't the mortuary stuff it was well i guess one of them was the mortuary stuff gilbert the son uh divorced his first wife to two days later marry his mistress to 50 days later get a divorce from her and be sued by her ex-husband for winning his wife's affections from him only to find out that the wife and husband did this on purpose to try to sue him to get his money because he was a rich oh, mortician Gilbert. dude, right? Poor Gilbert. Slow your roll, Gilbert. Poor Gilbert. So that was a family scandal. But the biggest scandal actually was related to the funeral home. It was in 1911, and Dr. Linda Hazard was a spiritualist who specialized <gasps> in a fasting... Starvation Heights? Yes. 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 We're so doing Starvation Heights. I would love to make this a whole episode. It's it, There's so much to it that I can't even talk about it now. I just know that... In terms of the Butterworths, um, do you want to tell me what you've heard about Starvation Heights and Dr. Hazard? 
just that she was a quack yeah. who basically tricked people into starving themselves yes. Yes. as a health thing. You're exactly right. She, in 1911, was accused of starving to death her patient, uh, Claire Williamson, uh, who was 33 years old. And Claire's sister was actually back at Dr. Hazard's sanatorium being starved. But she didn't, she didn't die at the time Dr. Hazard was investigated for Claire's death. Of course, shortly before Claire died, Dr. Hazard got Claire to sign over all of her bank account information to well, Dr. Yeah. Hazard. So uh, prosecutors took the case and they believed that E.R. Butterworth and Sons were working in collusion with Hazard. They thought that the Butterworths had removed Claire's body from the sanatorium without proper documentation, cremated her, and then presented a different, less emaciated corpse to Claire's British family, trying to pass her off as not having been starved to death, having died of natural causes, and then Dr. Hazard was going to give them part of the money. Whoa. Is that just a theory, it's or a is there theory. any evidence for that? Dr. Hazard was... Uh, Dr. Hazard was convicted of manslaughter. There were eight other manslaughter cases that they wanted to try her for but couldn't get enough evidence to prosecute. So she went to jail. The Butterworths were accused but never prosecuted. Uh, or it was, I don't even know if that's called accused, but it was a theory that the prosecutors put forward. The Butterworths mm -hmm. maintained that, no, this British family just wasn't accustomed to American embalming. And how that made corpses look different from European corpses. Because yeah. they weren't doing embalming over there at the time. Um, I could also buy that. I could also buy that, is right. I'm not really sure which side I come down on. It sounds like E.R. Butterworth was actually kind of a good dude. I mean, he took apart his own wagon to make a coffin for a settler. He regularly mm -hmm. forgave debts of people who came in and had funeral services and then later couldn't pay regularly uh, i guess the university of washington libraries has at least two letters on file that he wrote or one he received from a guy saying i'm so sorry it took me so much time to pay off my debt and it was from his own wife's funeral like 10 years earlier and then a letter from butterworth going back to the guy going there was no way i was going to press you on this i i knew you would pay if and when you could i appreciate that you made a payment at all Wow, okay. He did a lot of good stuff, so I I don't know, you know? Yeah. I could I can see both stories being true. I have no idea which it is. Yeah, I guess we're not going to know. We're not going to know. He died in 1921 after a series of strokes after his son Gilbert, the same one that, you know, got duped in marriage, was accused of defrauding the government and overcharging for military funeral services when there was an outbreak of the Spanish flu here in Seattle and a bunch of cadets at the military base died. Hmm. So poor ER, stressed to the max, lived a good long life, made a ton of money. He left over $200,000 to his sons and grandsons, which is about $2.5 million in today's money. Left wow. a ton of money to him. Uh, the kids carried on the business. Actually, at the time of Butterworth and Sons getting sold to a Louisiana outfit uh, in the, I think it was the 80s, was the longest running family-owned business in Seattle. Hmm. 
definitely longest owned family mortuary business in Seattle. That was pretty cool. But during that time, you know, they had that purpose built building downtown. They also moved to a different location in Capitol Hill, which is quite beautiful. The one downtown, part of it became Kells Irish Pub, which is still in business. And the one on Capitol Hill, uh, sorry, in uh, 2002 was renovated and became Chapel Bar, which uh, changed ownership and became Pine Box in 2011. So it's still a functioning bar as well. And both of these places are reported as haunted. Excellent. Excellent. Would you like to hear about hauntings of Kells Irish Pub and of Pine Box? Yes, please. Well, Kells Irish Pub owners have claimed since the 80s that it's a haunted location. And it's kind of run-of-the-mill haunting things. You know, glasses fall over. Silverware is seen to float in midair and then fall. They hear whispers. They hear a woman's laugh, specifically. The owner's sister in 2005 said she saw a very tall man with very thin hands in the kitchen one time just before he faded away. And there Mm. are some regular musicians that play there that have, similarly, they see a tall man in a hat sitting at the corner of of the bar when they're tuning up. And they've dubbed him Charlie, and they think he just comes to listen to the music. Were E.R. or Gilbert tall, or they think it's just somebody? I, they don't claim that it is anyone in the Butterworths family. Okay. Both of these places, it sounds like they think they're the ghosts of people who had their funeral services there or, you know, spent time in the morgue there. When... Butterworth and Sons was downtown. That was when the big Klondike gold rush was happening. And downtown Seattle was super frontier, very scrappy, also very dangerous. And a lot of people were, I mean, dying for all kinds of reasons, bar fights, robberies. Seattle was dangerous. Seattle was very dangerous. And morticians at the time were given $50 by the city if they would pick up dead bodies from the street. Oh. There were enough people dying in robberies and stabbings and just you know flew whatever it was being in these little shanty minor towns that they got 50 bucks each paranormal researchers have said that maybe these unhappy spirits are the unhappy spirits of people that were murdered and then ended up you know their final resting place was in the mortuary before they had a pauper's grave Uh, Hmm. but nothing i read said that the folks at kells or at pine box think that they're being haunted necessarily by butterworths what they okay, and that's funny because that's what I would associate more is if you say, oh, so-and-so haunts a place, I would think, well, they haunt their home or they haunt the place where they yeah. died or they haunt the place where they worked, yeah. not people haunting someplace where they were only briefly yeah. during their time on Earth. I don't – that's why I don't buy these hauntings in the same way that I would buy um, – the haunting of someone's, like you said, their home or a battlefield or something like that. Yeah, or like Angeline, where it's like, no, she was in the same place for 80 years. Yes, this doesn't feel like it would have the same energy, emotional, whatever connection. 
it does. On on the other hand, just like with Angeline, how we yeah. talked about how the market would make a lot of sense to a 19th century person, I think pubs would make a lot of sense to a 19th century person. I do think they would make a lot of sense. And Kells has got that, you know, kind of old world timeless pub feel. And the pine yeah. box has its, you know, it has its bars are made out of wood that was from the original building's basement. It has oh, okay. the leaded glass windows. It it both of those places I think have retained that turn of the century charm and feel that okay, it would feel familiar, right? If you were Kells Irish Pub has been investigated by a couple of different paranormal research groups. And I gotta say, we are never going to get mainstream media pick up on our podcast if I keep ragging on people. But Liz, good God, the Travel Channel show Ghost Adventurers in 2010 <laughs> did an episode on Kell's Irish Pub, and it is the dumbest, corniest, super fast cut, flashiest, stupidest ghost episode I have ever seen. <laughs> and I have watched a lot of ghost shows. They said that they, uh, I mean, the episode focused really heavily on them thinking that Butterworth was corrupt and money hungry and that he was implicated in the, the deaths of all these people at the starvation sanatoriums. This is the only place that I've seen it hyped to this degree. So yeah. I take that with a big old grain of salt. Um, they said on the episode that they were going to use infrared cameras to try to photograph ghosts because infrared cameras can pick up what our eyes can't, which is what ghosts are made of. And they said, quote, ghosts are made of ectoplasm and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, well-known fact. Well-known fact. You can look them up. You can look up Ghost Adventures Season 4, Episode 7, and see a photo of what they claim is a, quote, mangled child sitting on the steps that lead from the basement to the main pub. I looked at this photo. Uh, Liz, it does not look like a mangled child. It looks like a character from Club Penguin or a roast <laughs> chicken. It does, I mean, it looks like an aberration in a grainy ass infrared photo. It looks like bullshit. But they, of course, had so, a lot of experts say, oh no, that is a mangled, deformed, demonic child sitting on the steps. They didn't even work in. <laughs> something about like starved people no. or no money no. or anything no they've decided there's a goblin child that looks like a rotisserie chicken and it sits on the steps i i thought it was just total bullshit i'm much more into the first person stories that these musicians routinely see a dude in period dress with a big hat and it just seems like he's there enjoying the music or yeah. glasses fall. You know, like, of course, we could we could explain that away to Seattle is on a fault line. There are heavy trucks that drive past. Sometimes shit just moves in cabinets. But I would way more buy that being ghost activity than this bullshit blobby photograph being a demon that lives at Kell's mm -hmm. Irish Pub. The Pine Box... I was I, I have not been to Kell's Irish Pub, but I have been to Pine Box, and it was really beautiful. I went with my museology crew in, like, 2015. We didn't sit inside. We sat outside in this big heated tent that they have. But when you go through it to get to the tent, I thought the inside was really cool. Lots of dark wood. 
the original leaded windows, like I said, are there. Lots of mirrors. Um, it feels like a really, I mean, it feels like a bar. You know, it feels like a cozy, taverny saloon bar. And I could totally see it being haunted just because the ambiance was so yeah. conducive to some happy ghosts out there eating some beers. The eating some beers? <laughs> Drinking some beers? Jason says I do that all the time, that I say eating when I mean drinking. And fuck, now we have it on... Fuck. Fuck, now it's recorded. Shit. Oh, no. (laughs) Don't don't tell him. I'll give you ten bucks if you don't tell him you have a sound bite of that. Fuck. Do I do another take of that so I can edit it out and hide the evidence? No, just keep it. They were eating some beers at the bar. (laughs) Hey, Uh, we don't know how ghosts do. We don't know how ghosts do. So they're eating stuff, Liz. They're eating it. Uh, (laughs) Pine Box has kind of got this, like, hip glamour to it because it's where Bruce Lee's funeral service was in 1973. Mm. Okay. Uh, It was... Like I said, renovated in 2002, became Pine Box in 2012, and in 2012, a group called White Noise Paranormal Research and Investigation, they have a big name, did an overnight investigation of the place. They said the Pine Box has one of the highest concentrations of EVPs they've experienced. Do you know what EVPs Hmm. are? You probably do. You're a ghost person. It's when you try to tape something and you hear the voice. Yeah, it's called electronic voice phenomenon. And the idea is that you're using equipment to capture energies that you can't hear with your people ears. But apparently, you know, your talk boy from Home Alone can pick up. Okay. I don't know. But this has a lot of EVPs. And apparently on the third floor, they asked, are you happy here? And heard a little girl say no. And they also picked up the presence of a very angry male spirit. Not a lot online about what the owners of the bar think. If they think it's haunted or not. I think that they're willing. How do you not go along with that? If your customers think right. it's haunted and it brings in money. Hell yeah, it's haunted. Of course. Um, but they, I do appreciate that they don't seem to be using that as a a big draw to get people in. They're much more excited about all the different rotating beer taps that they have. Good for them. Yeah, good for them. What do you think, Liz? You've not been to either of those. Do you think they're haunted? If people have energies that they leave behind, I find it kind of unlikely they would leave it someplace that they'd only been very briefly. Yeah. But I could be wrong, and maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the mortuary, or maybe you get to pick and people liked the pub maybe they wouldn't be haunted if they hadn't put pubs in where the mortuary used to be (laughs) maybe if it was an office building the spirits would have checked in and gone no this is really boring and gone someplace else if i had to be a ghost and i was stuck at the last place my body was a pub would be fine it's full of people they're happy they're having a good time they're eating their beers and they're singing their songs I like it. I'd stick around. I'd want to go to a movie theater, because I bet you would get bored. Don't you think you'd get tired of watching movies all the time? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think that very far through. No, but it's all Maybe good. I'd eat some beers and I'd be more entertained. Get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. I'm ready for this episode to be done, because you're sass. 
Your sass levels are maximum. <laughs> it is what happens when I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, before uh, we close the episode, if you died today and you wanted to haunt a place, where would it be? It can't be a movie theater. That's a bogus answer. Where would you haunt? Wow. All right, boss. <laughs> I'm in charge. Wh- whose afterlife is this? I guess you're right. Sorry, you can be a movie theater if you want to be boring. Um, Is it just that this is where I exist and I see everything that's happening? Or is it where I have to do haunting stuff? Like, do I have a certain amount of glasses I have to move and, like, keys I have to steal and stuff? Do I have to appear? I didn't think my question through what is a place that you wouldn't mind if your disembodied spirit has to be for the rest of eternity and it's not heaven it's not reincarnation it's not it's not a person you just have to pick a place and you don't Mm. have to do anything i would haunt the king cole bridge in riverfront park hot damn there's always a lot of stuff happening that's a good choice. I would see everything. I could see the clock tower. I could yeah. see all the festivals. I could see it when it was powwow. I could see pig out in the park. Yeah. Hot damn. You do know that they put the porta potties on that bridge, though, for a couple of the festivals. Oh. So you're going to be like Moaning Myrtle. Oh, no. For part of <laughs> it. But worse. Well, maybe I wonder if there's a sweet spot where I can find where I can see everything going on in the park, but I can also see downtown if there's parades and stuff. You should haunt the carousel. It's not there anymore. You told me about that or Matt told me about that or someone told me about it and I blocked it out of my brain because I refuse. I refuse to live in a state that doesn't have the Luth carousel downtown Spokane. Well, they're going to put it someplace downtown, but it's not where it was, where we got used to it being for a million years. No, I'm used to it. Mm-hmm. I'm used to it. What about Rocky Rococo's? Can I haunt Rocky Rococo's? Oh, yeah. And I will allow you to be able to eat some pizza because Excellent. otherwise it's just torturous. Otherwise you're in hell. You're in my version of and hell. Some, and some breadsticks. Yeah, some breadsticks. You're in a pizza parlor and you can't eat it. Forget yeah. it. <laughs> and then I can see parades go by and stuff and marches. <laughs> and you're real close to Auntie's bookstore, so you can leave a couple of times a year and go read some good books. Okay, that that all sounds pretty reasonable. Yeah, I could see you being a bookstore ghost. Now I feel like I should call the realtor and ask if there's any like lofts above Rocky Rococo's, because this actually sounds really good. Oh, damn, we could get so fat. They could install a dumb waiter just for you. Yeah. On it. All right. Okay. Good plan. We got this. We got it sorted out. <laughs> People should tell us in the comments where they would haunt. Where would you haunt? I told Jason that I, I, I'm breaking my own rules. I told Jason that if I become a ghost, I'm going to haunt him. And I'm going to do really helpful things like find change in the couch and then leave it on the countertop or find his keys and stuff like that for him. Oh, I didn't think we could like supervise loved ones. No, you can't. I, you can't. I can. We're working with... <laughs> um, if I have to play by my own rules and I have to haunt a place, not a person. Mm. I really like your downtown Spokane idea. I hadn't thought of that one. I think I'd haunt Lincoln Park. It's a big park. I love it. I've got a lot of good memories there. 
and I would really like that I could see people coming and having a good time, but there'd also be a lot of nature to watch. That's true, yeah. And I'd figure out how deep the pond up there is, because I'd be a ghost, so I could go into it. Yeah, that's the only thing stopping you right now from going into that (laughs) and finding out how deep it is (laughs) since you're not a ghost. (laughs) Who asked you? (laughs) (laughs) All right, do our outros. (laughs) You've been listening to Ouija Brats. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also find us on Twitter. Facebook, and Instagram at the Ouija Broads. This is Devin. This is Liz. And I forget our tagline. (laughs) We say live weird, die weird, stay weird. Yes. Should we do it? You say one, I say the other. And then you say the third one. I can try. That sounds hard. You try. Live weird. Die weird. Stay weird. Thank you for listening. Bye. (laughs) Yeah.